0: So if you're just joining us for the first time uh, my name is Herrick I think I've said that several times already this morning but I'm one of the pastors here uh, along with Tom and uh, Tom and Eb' were up in Oregon today so they are getting missing you guys um, but um, but yeah but we're at church plant we're new and since we launched we've mostly been teaching through the Gospel of John uh, but we've taken breaks uh, here and there we've done a series on our values we've done a series on uh, how to steward our finances. And recently this month we've really kind of focused in on Christmas and we did an Advent series, which actually I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. And it all kind of culminated with uh, a Christmas party last weekend. So if you were there, I'm still thinking about that chicken uh, that we had. I thought it was amazing. It was thank you for everyone that was there that helped to put this on. Jules, Paul, Lindsay, everybody. Uh, Thanks for everybody that was there early to help set up. It was really fun. So, for today, um, we're not going to jump back into the John series. I actually have kind of a special message that I think God put on my heart for our church. So, before I dive in, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we get to meet with you. Thank you that we get to hear from your word. God, please speak to us individually and corporately. Please help us to hear uh, your message. Please don't let us leave here unchanged. Uh, but please make this message uh, come alive in the hearts of all, myself included. I'm going to pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so tomorrow is New Year's Eve, which means that 2019 is basically upon us, and this is one of my absolute favorite times of the year. I love this. we got a little, a little uh, New Year's tradition, my wife Heather and I, where we'll sit down, we'll grab a, we have like one journal that we only, I think, bring out once a year on New Year's, and we'll kind of reflect on the last year and kind of write down All the things that we're grateful for, all the the kind of celebrations and all the challenges that we've experienced in the last year. And this one's been a big one for us. We moved just a lot of life change and transition. And we've just seen God do some pretty amazing things. So I'm really excited about that. So I love like reflecting and looking back. Um, I also love like looking ahead to the next year. That's one of my favorite things to do. I love setting goals and resolutions. Uh, There's certain types of people that probably don't like doing it. Uh, Maybe you're just kind of like, well, I'm probably not going to follow through with this anyway and just don't do it. Or some of you might get actually really excited about it. I'm in that camp. I get like super excited thinking about the next year. And so far, I have one goal for 2019. And I was thinking about it, kind of praying about it. And I really want to grow in helping to helping people by challenging them uh, biblically. So by challenging them, I don't mean like putting them down, shaming them, making them feel bad about themselves. But I mean like gently speaking to people's lives when I see that there's something missing. There's like an element of like the life of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the gospel that's just missing. So I want to grow in that. I typically tend to not do that so well. I get afraid of what people think. And I think it kind of, it makes it harder for me to like really love people well. So I want to grow in that. I actually want to invite others to do the same for me because I actually need to be challenged and confronted too. So that's like my one big goal so far for 2019. I'm still working on what that specifically looks like, but that's something I really want to do this year. So I love that. I love setting goals, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one in this room that loves to set goals or is even thinking about maybe having a New Year's resolution this year. So I wanted to ask one question as we start this today. Uh, For you personally, as you think about 2019, the year to come, is there anything you want to change grow in or accomplish in 2019 is there anything you want to change grow in or accomplish is so there maybe like a new skill you want to learn you want to learn how to code or how to budget or how to do some basic car or home repairs if you want to change a, a starter let me know I can show you how to do that Maybe for you, like, there's just a new habit that you want to create. Maybe you want to go to the gym. Maybe you want to find a hobby. Maybe you want to let go of a hobby that's taking over your life. Maybe you want to set up a date night with your spouse. Or maybe for you, there's just a relationship that you want to invest in. Maybe it's somebody in your life that you've lost touch with. Maybe it's somebody, like, in your life that you want to get to know better, a coworker. Maybe it's a romantic relationship that you want to invest in. I think whatever it is, like, we all want to change. We all want to grow. We all want to experience new things in 2019. And I just want to be really clear that as a church, we are all for this. We think this is great. We think pursuing goals and setting goals and pursuing them is a great thing. But here's the thing, though. As good as dreaming about goal setting is, I had a conversation once that really helped me realize that it's not only important to, like, choose goals and give yourself to them, but it's also important to know why we're setting goals in the first place. I'm going to be drinking a lot of water today, just a heads up. Uh, I was at a party once, and I had a really interesting conversation with a guy that I'd never met before. Uh, He was a behavioral therapist, and he was an atheist, not a Christian guy, but he started talking to me about what motivates us, what motivates people, and he shared this framework for human motivation with me that he uses with his clients. It's called SEAT. Has anybody ever heard of it? S E A T. So if it helps, I'll explain it. SEAT is kind of an acronym. So S is for sensory. Again, this is talking about motivation. Sensory. We want to feel good. So we do things because we want to feel, actually feel good. Uh, E is for escape, which I think we know this one. Like we want to get out of a situation, out of a task, or out of a person. You know, we just don't want to be around. Uh, A is for attention, Like we want a reaction, a response. And it could be like a positive one, like a positive thing that we do to try to get attention, or it could actually be like a negative behavior. Whatever it is, the the goal is attention. Sort of like the opposite of escape. And then T, the T in C is for tangibles, which is just stuff. I think we get that one too. As he was explaining it, even though this guy has a completely different worldview for me, I'm a Christian, he's an atheist. As he's talking about human motivation, everything you said rang true. Everything. And it made me feel really uneasy. Because I started to think about the fact that if I'm motivated by seat, it means I'm often doing things for myself, not for the benefit of other people. And I think this can be true for all of us. This isn't just like me struggling with this. This is the temptation that I think all of us face. Think about like, let's get specific. Do you desire a great career, money, achievements, accolades, experiences, relationships, a family, ministry, good looks? And do you want it because you want to feel good about yourself and prove your worth? Even, I was thinking about it, even the desire to escape, it can be another way of seeking to prove yourself. So, for example, take someone who changes jobs, just like bounces from one job to another, or someone who bounces from one church to another because they don't feel valued and they just keep moving on until they find like a place where somebody will value me, somebody will actually notice me, somebody will approve of me. So but at the end of the day, I think we're all motivated by something, and especially as we're thinking about 2019 setting goals. And I think seats is often uh, it helps describe why we do what we do. We try to prove ourselves in different ways. I think this can be true for those of us who are Christians, and those of us who are not Christians, who are not necessarily, if you don't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, this is true for you too. But today, basically, I want to spend this morning talking about the fact that trying to prove ourselves is not the only motivation that we have. I want to think with you guys, as I've been thinking about it for myself, what if we weren't motivated by what other people thought of us? or by money? What if we were motivated by something better? I think this is totally possible. And I feel like God put it on my heart to share some scripture with you this morning. And I think it can help us to find greater freedom from trying to prove ourselves through what we accomplish and totally really start to help us to be free to really love people. So if you have a Bible, turn over with me to Romans 321. If you don't have one, it should be up on the screen. Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. It's not necessarily the, the most exciting book of the Bible. Uh, it's not as exciting as Genesis or Exodus or one of the Gospels. It can be a little bit dense. It can be a little hard to understand. I feel like you need a dictionary when you're reading it. You need a little biblical dictionary when you're reading it. But I think Romans gives us an incredible high-level view of the Christian life. And according to Romans, humanity's biggest problem is sin. And so what is sin? Well, sin causes us to curve in on ourselves at the expense of God and other people, as the early church father Augustine famously said. So if you start to read the letter to the Romans, you'll notice that there's a very clear flow. So at the beginning, there's like this curving in on ourselves, and then there's these, this disastrous kind of consequence that comes from it if you've ever read it, the first two, three chapters of Romans are really intense because they detail the disintegration of our character, our relationships, and even the creation itself because of sin. And so Paul explains that everybody sinned, specifically we're curved in on ourselves in in two ways. We're turned in on ourselves through religious self-righteousness or irreligious self-indulgence. Religious self-righteousness or irreligious self-indulgence. I think I've got a slide. Yep. So religious self-righteousness, this is sort of like using God and his name, his word, his commands to achieve self-salvation, to kind of prove ourselves to him and other people, as the Jews were prone to doing through obedience to the Old Testament law. Or there's irreligious self-indulgence. This would be like the people outside of, of the church, all of whom have a sense of God. Paul's really clear about that. Everybody knows about God by nature. Everybody. But with, with those who indulge in, in, or those who are religiously self-indulgent, choose to ignore God and the fingerprints he's left all over creation to point us back to himself. So there's religious self-righteousness and then irreligious self-indulgence. Those are the two ditches that humanity basically falls in, according to Romans. And Paul basically tells, tells us as you're reading it, none of us is right with God based on our merit or our religious pedigree. So as I was thinking about it, this like specifically means that like Sunday school standout Sally and Satanist Steve down the road are pretty equal ground in the judgment. If they plan to bring their own resume to God's judgment seat, why? Why is that? What, what, what will their resume say? So the big question that Paul's now about to tackle is how can sinful people, and this would include the religious, self-righteous, and then how can sinful people, the religious self-righteous, and then the, the irreligious self-indulgent be accepted by a just God. So we're going to have to read Romans three twenty-one to 26, and I think they'll be up on the slide. So let me preface this by saying, these verses are a little bit tough to understand, especially the first few times that you read it. There's a lot of uh, scholarly ink spilled over these verses, but I'll just define some terms as I go and then unpack some key themes later. Here we go. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, so this is God's saving justice on behalf of his people. Has been manifested apart from the law because the law can only condemn us. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, so in other words, the Old Testament itself prepared us to look beyond the law of God for salvation. Verse 22 The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul's been making his point all along that everybody's a, everybody's a sinner through religious performance or through, through irreligion, but he's about to say something that he has not said at any point in his letter up until this point, verse 24. Here's the pivot. Here's, the, here's where everything changes. So everybody by nature has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Big word, we'll we'll go back to that one. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God did not immediately punish every sin. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is this human problem that we have, that God is just and that we are not, that God is holy and that we are not. So it's like, how can God be just and not condemn us all? That's a big tension in the letter of the Romans. And then Paul's just basically told us how it's possible for him to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And it's through Jesus's blood through what he did for us on the cross. There's a ton here. There's way more that I can cover in detail. If you have questions or want to nerd out on theology, hit me up afterwards. We can chat. But I basically want to give you my summary of this passage, which if you're taking notes for today, here's my first point on the big idea uh, with this passage. It's this. We're justified not by what we do, but by what Jesus did. We're justified not by what we do, but by what Jesus did. Okay, I'm going to unpack this point briefly. And I feel like there's three things that I kind of want to highlight from this text. Justification, faith, and the idea of a gift. So, verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace. What is justification? What does that word mean? What does it mean to be justified? Uh, This past week, two weeks ago, um, I had the pleasure of going to uh, traffic court, and I had to stand before a judge, and I was basically on trial. Uh, It was the, the people of the state of California versus Herrick Berga. I was driving 74 on the 76 or whatever in North County, San Diego. I got pulled over. And uh, the speed limit is not, it's less than that. So I got a ticket. (laughs) And so basically, I had to go. There was like a bit of an administrative error, uh, which was really just that I didn't, I forgot to renew my license. So I was driving with an expired license. So I had some things to work out with the court. But basically, justification, I share that real quick just to say that justification is a term that's borrowed from the law courts. So if you've ever had to stand before a judge for a traffic ticket or whatever, uh, you know that the judge will say, how do you plead? And you have three options, basically. You can plead guilty, you can plead not guilty, you can plead no contest, which means you don't, you're not going to bother to try to defend yourself. Uh, but you're, not, you're also not saying that you're guilty. Basically saying like I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna try, and I really felt like I was thinking about it. I was really annoyed to get that ticket. I was really annoyed to be there. But that um, as I was thinking about it and thinking about justification, uh, I feel like it was really important for me to go before the judge and say that I was guilty, because that might be the only time for the rest of my existence where I'm going to go before a judge and say I'm guilty justification has to do with guilt, on the one hand, condemnation, and then on the other hand, vindication. And if I believe in Jesus, which as far as I know I do, if I'm united to Christ by faith, when I stand before God, when he's the judge, and I have to give an account for my life, the verdict, if I'm justified, is going to be what? Not guilty. It should be guilty. That's what I deserve. But in Christ... Because Jesus took our sins, he took the, the penalty for us, we are now declared not guilty. We're, we're, we're acquitted. Justification, condemnation on the one side, vindication, acquittal on the other. Justification means that we are acquitted in the courtroom of God. That's a, that's a good thing. If you read Romans, it's so the first two or three chapters are just so intense, because they talk about God's judgment. They talk about the reality of like having to give an account uh, of your life before God. They talk about the reality that God not only looks at your external deeds, but he looks at your internal motivations. He looks at the heart. So that's really bad news if you have any self-awareness of your own sin. You don't want that. That's not going to be a good day for you. It's not going to be a good day for me. But the good news is that God set Jesus forward By his blood is a propitiation, which means that he took on the wrath of God for us. So there's no more wrath. If you believe in Jesus, that's true of you today, now. There's no more wrath for you. So how can a person be made right with God? How does pretty much every religion answer that question? By human effort. Pretty much every religion answers that question. You can be made right with God by human effort. The New Testament says we are justified not by what we do, but by what Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 8 kind of fleshes this out a little bit more. If this is confusing, I think this will help clarify it. Romans 5, 8 to 10 says this. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Are you guys seeing this? Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you can be forgiven. You can go from condemned to acquitted. You can go from guilty to not guilty through faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It means you're loved today. It means that God cares about you. It means that God thought you were worth dying for. Even though by nature we're his enemies through sin, the war's over. It's peacetime with God. It's peacetime. No more war. It's permanent too. And all of it's because of Jesus' his life and his death, his obedience. It's not based on your obedience or mine. So what does this mean? Like on the one hand, to the religious person, it says you can't make yourself right with God. It's impossible. It clearly points out religion is a ditch, not as the way. It's a ditch. You can't make yourself right with God. On the other hand, to the irreligious person, this says if you think you're too messed up for God, think again. You're not. You're not. If you believe in Jesus, you're not too messed up. Jesus got messed up on the cross for you. So I want to just take a second and ask this. For some of you guys, you're like, I've heard this all my life. Some of you are dozing off right now. But I want you to like, listen to me, please. Right now. How would your life change if you really believed this? How would your life change if you really believed it? Can you imagine a life where you're increasingly confident that God cares about you, that he loves you, that you're forgiven, and that he accepts you right now, even if you've had a terrible week, a really bad day, a really bad morning, which we had one at our house. We've had a couple rough moments this week. Bad month. Maybe you've had a bad year. Maybe you've had a bad few years. Maybe you're going on like a decade or two of just roughness spiritually. If you really believed that God made you right with him and that you're at peace, how would your life change? What might knowing that you are justified right now due to your feelings of inadequacy, guilt, and shame? This is where the rumor meets the road. Anxiety, inadequacy, guilt. Do you think these feelings would potentially begin to lose some of their power over your life if you really believe this. I think it would. You guys with me? Is this making sense? You can have all of this. Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation with God. How? It's through faith. So we just talked about justification. Now let's look at faith. What is faith and how does it justify us? I think it's pretty important if like you're, you're banking on faith to save you. It's pretty important to know what faith is. you ever asked yourself the question, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? New Testament faith, simply put, is confident trust in God's salvation. We'll say that again. New Testament faith, simply put, is confident trust in God's salvation. So there's some verses here that help flesh this out. Romans 4 verses three to five. I think we've got them up here on the slide. Romans four, verses three to five, says this. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. I'll explain what that means in a second. Here's the part that's actually pretty clear. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question. This is not a hypothetical or a trick question. If you work 40 hours a week and you make $10 an hour, how much money do you make per week? 400 thank you. My wife is great at math. You earned it. That money is yours. Nobody can take it or touch it. It's yours. You're free to do with it what you want. We get that. It's called working. It's called life. But faith is totally different. Faith is not working. Faith isn't work hard, do your best, and God will accept you because he knows your heart and that you mean well. That's not what faith is. Faith is more like the empty hands of a beggar with no money who asks for bread And gets it. How will you be justified? We're declared right by God. It's not because you earn it, it'll be because you open up your hands and ask God for the bread of life. Jesus, that's faith. And if you ask, you will receive. Through faith, God justifies the ungodly, God justifies the wicked person. You ever heard that before? God justifies the wicked? I had never heard that before. I remember where I was when I heard it. I was living on Riley Street in San Diego. Ruined my life when I heard that God justifies the wicked. And you know why it ruined my life? Because I was starting to realize that I'm pretty wicked. And so justification was for me. And it wasn't based on my performance. It wasn't based on what I did for God. It wasn't based on how kind I was. It wasn't based on how hard I worked. It wasn't based on any of that. It was based on God's free justification on my behalf. God justifies the wicked. You heard right. It's a scandal, if you really get it, because God is just and he's the judge of the whole world. But Jesus changes everything. On the cross, Jesus died to put away our sin. It's a gift. So we've talked about justification. We've talked about faith. Now, gift. Why is it significant that justification by faith is a gift? Why does it even matter? So, it's Christmas has just passed. Have you ever noticed that Christmas is all fun and games until someone gets you a way better gift than you got them? Then it's like, ah, you didn't have to. It's too much. You shouldn't have. And we can kind of feel embarrassed because our gift didn't match up to theirs. We may even decide to get a gift in the future for them as a way to kind of even things out. But for many of us, it's not easy to receive a gift, especially if it feels extravagant. Isn't that right? It's hard to receive a gift. It's hard to, to take help, even when we need it. But here's the thing. Our text says in verses 24 to 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as one who basically he satisfies the wrath of God for us. So God gave up his own son to release you from the penalty of sin, save you from death. It's all a gift you can never repay. If getting a $100 Christmas gift from someone that you gifted movie tickets to makes you blush, how about having someone you've rejected and abandoned, someone that you've turned into an enemy, die for you? How about that? How does that make you feel? If it's never made you feel uncomfortable, then I don't know that you fully understood the gospel. It's, it's a really big deal. God gave his son for you and for me. What does this gift tell you about how God feels about you? How does he feel about you? You can, actually, you don't have to say it out loud, but you're very valuable and precious in his sight. You mean a lot to him. A lot. (laughs) Speaking of war and peace. Uh, So that's, so my second point is this. Sorry. (laughs) What's going on back there? (laughs) How does being justified by faith as a gift through Jesus Christ change us? How might this impact your motivation as you dream about what's ahead in 2019? Here's my second point. This one's more of an implication of the text. Point number two. Because you are justified, you no longer have to prove yourself. Because you are justified, you no longer have to prove yourself. So, as we talked about earlier in life, we often try to prove ourselves through our careers, through our parenting, through our knowledge, um, by being healthy, by accumulating money and accumulating stuff. Really, we can turn almost anything into a way of proving ourselves. So, we want to be acceptable to God on the basis of our own merit. And the reality is, I've been there before, and I can easily slip in and out of this mentality. This is a daily fight, daily battle. When things are going well, so when I'm reading Scripture regularly, when I'm taking part in community, when I'm serving, when I'm feeling fruitful, I can feel like God is happy with me. But when things don't go well, what happens? I can experience this kind of gnawing sense of doubt when it comes to God's love. If I've messed up recently or sinned, I can start to wonder, how does God really feel about me? Is he mad? Am I letting him down? I probably wouldn't say it out loud, but that's what's happening underneath the surface. And I think in this valley, most of us have been, we're pretty churched, uh, certainly way more than San Diego where I came from. Uh, This is a churched area. So there's a good chance if you're here, you've been a part of the church for many years. I think it's especially easy for those of us who have been in the church for many years to end up in this space of doubting God's love for us. We become a little bit, as I thought about it, we kind of become a little bit like Matt Damon's character in Saving Private Ryan. Has anybody seen that movie? Yeah. Uh, If you've not seen the movie, there's a lot of blood and a lot of F bombs. So if that bothers you, you may want to hold off on it. If you're not bothered by it, though, it's a great flick. It's about a rescue operation during World War II to take one man, Private James Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon, a young Matt Damon. Uh, They want to take him out of harm's way. And the reason they want to do that is because all his brothers died in battle. I think he had three or four other... I think he might have had four brothers. All of them died in World War II, so they had to take him out because they didn't want the family to be left without any children. They didn't want... Uh, their mother to, to have to bury all their, their sons. So, uh, this might not sound too crazy to us today. It's like, how hard can it be to find one guy? Uh, but this is 1940-something. It's extremely hard to find one guy. Extremely. Uh, you couldn't just like, pick up a cell phone and call, uh, whatever. They just didn't, they, they, It was really challenging to find people. And so they had to send a team. So Tom Hanks who plays Captain Miller, basically leads a rescue effort. So he takes like eight guys with him, and they go through Europe to find this one dude. It's a really amazing movie. A lot of them end up dying along the way. They sacrifice their lives to get this one guy out. And so in the dramatic end of the movie, spoiler alert, it's been out for 20 years. <laughs> have to forgive me. They find private Ryan. They find their guy. Yeah, believe it. They find him. But the twist is Tom Hanks, who leads this on this this group of people, gets shot. And so he he's laying basically in his own blood, he's dying here in this last scene. Does anybody remember what Tom Hanks says to Matt Damon? Earn this. It's like he's dying, you know. You know, Woody from Toy Story. He's like, he's bleeding out. It's really intense. And he's like, James, he can barely get the words out. James, earn this. Earn it. And then he dies. And we would never say this. We wouldn't. We would never acknowledge this out loud. But a lot of times we think that's what Jesus did for us, that he died for us. And now that we have to earn it, Not a water. earn this, like we have to earn it through our devotion, like we have to earn it through our service, our obedience, like we have to earn it by being perfect. Here's the good news. As Jesus lay dying, what did he say from the cross? It is finished. His words to us were not, earn this. It wasn't. His words to us were, it is finished. It's done. The one and only sacrifice for sin. Done. For you and for me. I love this quote. Pastor Tim Keller said said this, your best achievements have done nothing to justify you before God, and our worst failures do not exclude you. This is the new reality that we live in as disciples of Jesus. You don't have to earn anything. The gospel is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. If you've ever heard that phrase before, you can never earn anything. The sacrifice of Jesus. So here's the thing. How does, where does the rubber meet the road here? If you really believe this, how would your life change? How would your life change? I was thinking about just a few things. If you're prone to perform for God, or to show others that you're worthy, how could believing that God considers you worthy on account of Jesus help you take off the mask and stop pretending to be better than you are? Like, you have to earn this. If you're prone to judging others or putting them down in light of Jesus' free grace would you commit to no longer judging people? Because you're not judged. Instead of judging others you can learn to commit to gently and compassionately walk alongside fellow strugglers. Letting your own struggles and God's kindness towards you and your struggles soften your heart and also warm it to the plight of other people. Is this making sense? If you're prone to overworking, could believing God accepts you today as you are help you to rest, like really rest, to just stop and take a nap? Sometimes that's the most spiritual thing you can do. Just take a nap. Put the tools down, close the laptop up, just put it away and take a nap if you're prone to perfectionism could knowing God's work was perfect and it's credited to you help you relax and obsess less I think it can and the last thing if you're prone to downplaying your sin or defending yourself or hiding from people or you're prone to exaggeration could knowing that our sin sent Jesus to his death help you to be honest about where you're at? About how you're struggling with sin? Could this help you be more open to correction from other people? And ultimately, would you want to take steps to leave sin behind? Not just sit in it. Not defend it. Not build a moat around your sin so that no, nothing can get in. Nothing can come out. Just sin on top of sin, you know? That would just Bring the moat down, or whatever. You guys know what I mean. Design's not my thing. So to summarize, point number two, because you are justified, you no longer have to prove yourself to God. His word to us is not earn this. It's, it's finished. So my third and final point this is where we're going to end. Because we have nothing left to prove, we're free to love God and other people. Because we have nothing left to prove, we are free to love God and other people. I love this, you've probably heard this passage before, I had never read it out of the NLT, uh, but Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. But here's, I love this, for we are God's masterpiece. Did you know that you're God's masterpiece? created for good works so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God saved us for good works, not by them. I'm going to say it again. God saved us for good works into a life of doing good, not because we've got a life of doing good down and we've built a resume. He saved us for good works, not by them. So this is where I think we can get practical. Uh, I want to highlight three potential ways and we could be freed up in 2019 for good works. As you're thinking about the year to come, you're thinking about goal setting, potentially New Year's resolutions, I want to give you guys three kind of categories to think about. We're going to have it up on the screen. First one is people. And then Cindy has uh, some uh, sheets, actually, that I printed up. So you guys can take these. Uh, she'll pass them out. You can take this home. This is going to be on the screen, but there's um, physical copies you can take home with you if you want to review it later. So are there people in our church that God's put on your heart to pursue more intentionally? Maybe it's someone that you know needs to be supported through a difficult season. Maybe it's someone you know needs to be challenged to grow. Maybe it's someone you know who, that desires more in, relational investment and discipleship. Are there people you feel led to give more of yourself to or actually ask For more of their time, this is a big one. I feel like sometimes it's it's us giving more of our time, but sometimes it's just asking people for more of their time. Sometimes it's actually asking for help. Um, Just to be clear, if you are in a space where you want help or an area of your life, that's why Tom and I are here. That's what we're 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 here to pastor this church, and we want to help. We want to help you guys. If at any point you've asked us for help and we've not gotten back to you, ask again. Uh, We're administratively challenged as a pastoral duo. um, We've got our strengths, we've got our weaknesses, and administration, keeping track of of things is not a strength that we have. So if at any point you've asked us for help, ask us again. Um, Yeah. Is there people that you want, you feel led to give more of yourself to or ask for more of their time? Do you want intentional investment in discipleship? Ask someone to disciple you in an area of your life. Um, Are there people outside of the church that God has put on your heart to love more intentionally? Maybe there's a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or a barista or another parent you met through a group or playtime. Maybe God's opening a door to share the love of Jesus in practical ways to them. And then I just threw this one in here because I need this one. Do you need to set up a regular date night with your spouse and ask others for help? Love you. that's people. By the way, these these are just meant to um, help you think. These are just ideas. So the second one is projects. Is there a project at work that requires a bit extra but could be a practical way to bless your workplace? Maybe you have a personal project, like pursuing one of your passions through writing and podcasting, music that can bless other people. Maybe this year it's like maybe you want to join a local club or a league or a meetup and invite friends into it. Is there a project God might be calling you to give yourself to over this coming year? So people, projects, and the third one, possessions. I think this one's important. Sometimes our possessions can become more about status than utility. And I really feel like God's going to invite some of us this coming year to give some possessions away to others who might benefit from them more than we do. So, some questions. Are there possessions you might be able to use to bless others in 2019? Is there an extra bedroom you could free up to host someone from the church for a season? Is there an extra car you don't use much that someone else might really benefit from having? Is there extra money in an account that you can use to bless others who are struggling financially? What possessions might you be able to use to bless others in 2019? By the way, if, you, if the third one really rings, resonates with you, uh, I want to encourage you to talk to Royce and Allison. This is an amazing couple from Uptown. Uh, They, I was a pastor on staff. I was with Royce pastoring in Uptown for several years and they are the most uh, generous people with their possessions I've ever met. And so if you want prayer, go talk to them, ask for prayer. Um, Yeah, love them. They've, they've helped me to start thinking about this really specifically in some amazing ways. So they're here and can talk to them today. They're visiting from Uptown. So there's obviously a bunch of things that I just mentioned And the point of this isn't to overwhelm you. The point of this isn't to make you feel like, now I got to do a bunch of stuff in 2019. Um, We're free. Hopefully, if you take anything away from this message, is that we're free from needing to accomplish things to prove ourselves. So that's not the point of this list. Um, At the same time, we're also free to pursue good works in 2019. So this is meant to hopefully help you and help help you to think creatively. So I want to call the worship band back up. I'm going to close. And I really want to encourage you to think about this question. I think we'll have it up on the screen. What changes would you make if you knew you didn't have to prove yourself to God, others, or yourself in 2019? What changes would you make if you knew you didn't have to prove yourself to God, to other people, or to yourself in 2019? Obviously, I just gave you guys some ideas as far as people and projects to invest in and potentially possessions that you can use to bless others. But I wanted to share just a few more things. We're a church plant. We're just in the beginning stages of our life together as a family. And there are some things that are going to take time for us to start really establishing a culture. But I think in light of this message, I think God's really inviting us to do certain things, to, like be, to start thinking about things. Like for example... If it's true that you no longer have to prove yourself to God or other people, would you be willing to start confessing sin to others in a, like ongoing, regular way? Because your identity is not based on your failures. It's based on Jesus' cross. Would you feel more open to asking for and receiving help from other people if you don't have to prove yourself anymore? Would you allow others to serve you for some of us we, we like to serve, we love to serve, but can other people actually serve you? Can you receive a gift from someone else? An extravagant gift. Again, we're banking our hope on the life of Jesus given for us, and we're saying we've received that freely. Like you can you can take an extravagant gift from someone. You can ask for help. You can take help from other people. In 2019, would you get uncomfortable to serve others without jockeying for credit or praise in 2019 this is all true if you're justified if you're right with god if you don't have to prove yourself anymore would you be able to finally start saying no to overworking or undereating or overspending to impress other people or whatever fill in the blank 2019, would you be able to recognize when you're smothering others and take a chill pill? God loves you. He accepts you. In 2019, would maybe we start to listen more than we talk because we don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need to prove that we're smart or funny or whatever. And for some of us, in 2019, would we just start to talk, period, because what you have to say matters. You don't have to be afraid anymore. I'm gonna, this is my final thought. I feel like it's important to do a special note for the moms in the room. You have a very hard and very important job that leaves you with little time and little energy. If setting a resolution or goal for 2019 feels impossible, take heart. There's no pressure to do this. In this season, if all you can do is hold on to Jesus and take care of your little ones, that's a win. Straight up. Love you, moms.